It is my great pleasure to introduce um, a perfect speaker for this occasion. Uh, Bill Kovacic is a professor at George Washington University Law School. Uh, began his career, my, my students in the room may, may like to know, at George Mason. Uh, and within the world of the FTC has held uh, just about every position uh, one could. Bill sir, served as general counsel to the agency, uh, commissioner, and then chair. Uh, he received in 2011 the FTC's Miles Kirkpatrick Award for Lifetime Achievement. Uh, his uh, thoughts and insights about running agencies uh, expand beyond uh, the, the boundaries of these United States. Bill uh, has served as the non-executive director with the UK's Competition uh, and Markets Authority, vice chair of the International Competition Network, uh, and has advised just about every country on the globe with respect to design of their own competition agency. If it has happened in the world of uh, agencies and competition law, Bill, Bill has seen it, done it, thought about it uh, more than just about anybody uh, in, in the room or in the world. Uh, he also um, is the co-author of an especially good antitrust case book, available in a gift shop somewhere um, while, while I'm hawking stuff. Uh, Please join me uh, in thanking, welcoming Bill Kovacic. Thank you, Josh. I'm thrilled to be here today. As Josh said, uh, George Mason gave me my start in academia. Not a day goes by when I don't realize what a great beginning that was for me. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with co-author Josh, with uh, Andy Gavel, who's here, who worked on that wonderful case book, and David Hyman, uh, who's here, from whom I've learned so much in thinking about questions of institutional design. Um, I want to talk about, in, in many ways, the larger question that the previous panel addressed, and to, to ask whether it matters uh, if Humphrey's executor goes beneath the waves. I'd like to start by talking uh, about, about independence. Uh, I think the field of administrative law and commentary, in a sense, along with statutory reflection, has done us a disservice by using that term because it is so misleading. I don't know of a public body in the United States or in many other countries that has a lot of power, a substantial amount of public resource and is not subject to an important degree of accountability through different mechanisms. So the notion that an agency would be independent in the sense of isolation from the political process in a basic way is unimaginable. And it certainly doesn't describe the status of the Federal Trade Commission. We need a much better vocabulary to identify how we reconcile the tension between autonomy necessary to persuade courts that agencies have behaved properly, legitimacy that comes from having an appropriate accountability regime with the legislature or other public officials, uh, and the effectiveness that comes from being able to persuade public officials to give you things you need, like a budget, like power. So when we talk about independence, the FTC is an independent agency or other independent agencies, we start off on exactly the wrong foot because none of them are. And we can see in the FTC's case that the FTC was never intended to be independent. 
in any fundamental way. The 1914 legislation encompassed a striking compromise in trade-off. The FTC was given, in one sense, remarkably elastic authority. Uh, the famous Section 5 of the FTC Act, which prohibits unfair methods of competition, had a deliberately elastic potential to it. And this is to facilitate, with administrative adjudication, what Dan Crane has called norms creation. And the unmistakable mandate that Congress gave the agency is embedded in several of the committee reports that were generated during the development of the act that said we could try to write down everything that we regard as being inappropriate conduct. We've done some of that in the Clayton Act, which we are adopting in parallel, but as much as we would try to do it, we would be engaged in the same effort that fellow teachers of contracts regard as drafting the perfectly complete contract, which is completely impossible at some point. So we're not going to do it. We're going to deliberately give this agency the responsibility to use this broad framework and expertise to generate new norms of competition law and policy. That's what we're going to do. We're also going to give the agency extraordinary capacity to gather business records without connection to any specific law enforcement program. That's section six. We are importing the broad power that the Bureau of Corporations, the antecedent agency had, and we are augmenting it to give the agency, in effect, compulsory process, not only to gather business records, to compel businesses to prepare reports, and to use that information to inform judgments about how economic policy should be carried out. Both of those, as I'll say in a moment, had powerful political implications. But there was a trade-off, and here's the basic trade-off. We are creating a relatively weak agency when it comes to enforcement and implementation. We are giving it no civil penalty authority. It is not a criminal enforcement mandate. The remedy we have in mind for the exercise of the norms creation function is to issue prospective cease and desist orders. Don't do it again. Indeed, there's no machinery contained in the original statute about how the agency, in the face of an infringement of one of its orders, and it issued a lot of them, how that infringement would be challenged. And it became clear in the execution of the law until the 1930s to the period that Jennifer referred to before that defendants got several bites at the apple before they had to worry about any sanctions. Several different steps before ultimately an order would be embodied in a declaration by a federal court that the order was mandatory and then a subsequent infringement of that order could be treated as contempt. But firms knew in their experience with the commission that you could transgress the line being drawn at least twice before anything bad happened to you. That is a decidedly weak implementation framework. In fact, it's so weak that one begins to wonder about the sincerity of the declaration of policy in the statute when combined with the thin staffing that accompanied the creation of the agency is this what a number of political scientists would say is nothing more than credit claiming for symbolic gestures that are not followed up with adequate implementation measures. 
So it's a broad, elastic norms creation mandate, but it's going to be implemented with very light touch remedies. And indeed, I agree entirely with Tom Merrill's assessment, which you'll hear later today, that there was no power embedded in the original statute to adopt substantive competition rules. And by the way, it was only competition. As we'll see in a moment, there is an immediate expansion of the practical mandate through the implementation of the statute. Now, Congress knew that the original grant of authority was extraordinary. The norms creation function was breathtaking. And Albert Cummins, who's one of the chief sponsors of the measure in the Senate, is asked during the floor debates, do you realize what you're doing here? You're basically telling them they can establish new standards of conduct. Where will that go? What boundaries are there imposed upon it? And Cummins says, yeah, yeah, I know that. It's very broad. And then comes the powerful lack of political independence. He said, the agency's been entrusted with the mandate, but if it doesn't use the mandate as we intended, we can do something about it because, his words, Congress created the commission and it can destroy it. That's a cheery opening note for the beginning of a new agency. That is, the Congress that created you can obliterate you. And it's obvious from the expression of Cummins and others that they meant indeed to do that and were willing to threaten it over time. And it's important because the mandate itself is politically explosive. Notice what you get when you get the norms creation function. You are, by design, doing something new. You're doing something that's unprecedented. You've immediately opened the door for affected commercial interests to say what they've done is new and unprecedented. And you can answer by saying that's just what they had in mind in drafting this, but you're immediately exposed to the argument that you're going into an unknown realm, which has been described by many critical commentators as Star Trek law enforcement in the modern era, going where humans have never gone before. Well, that's right. And this was a deliberately experimental process with enormous political risk, because we know in the modern era there is a political feedback loop, which also could be seen as a cynical element of original design. Go do bold, important things. Business complains, comes back to us, and give us electoral resources. Oh, we didn't mean for you to do that. But go do more of it in order to keep this unvirtuous cycle going. And the other element that has breathtaking features is the data collection. Section 6, go gather business records using compulsory process, make them give you reports so that you can dive into the innermost ingredients of business decision making in a way that no agency has had a mandate to do before. A number of political scientists in later years would say both of those mandates are packed with political dynamite. And you add to it the expectation that the FTC would leave to the Department of Justice the cut and dry stuff. Anything criminal, that goes to them. Anything that involves in this nascent regime of competition policy that's cut and dried, 
the early cartel offense. That goes to the Department of Justice. You're supposed to operate in this band of discretion that surrounds the rest of the antitrust system, doing new things. And by the way, we expect you to take on some of the hardest challenges that one finds the economy. And if you're not bringing cases, at least you're writing reports and bringing to the attention of the larger policymaking community what's wrong, what's going ahead. So is it a surprise that there would be presidents and legislators who would be keenly interested in how this function was carried out and that they would develop a host of mechanisms of political control that, save for the removal power and the limits on it, involve, in many instances, intrusive political oversight. So the notion that at any time during its history, the FTC has been a rogue running around without effective political control and oversight is a fiction. Because those mechanisms of control have been built in from the beginning. What changes after 1914? This is the original mandate. It stretches. And the stretching of the mandate bears directly upon the excellent discussion that we heard in the previous panel and relates to the policy developments that our first panel talked about this morning. First, what happens? We see the development of a consumer protection mandate that was completely unanticipated. If you'd asked legislators in 1914, what about the development of the FTC Act as a method for controlling dishonest advertising? They would have said, that's not this law. This is all about competition law and policy. But what happened? What is the largest segment of complaints addressed by the FTC in its first decade? It's this scenario. I'm an honest business person. In that most excellent casebook, we use a coffee shop example. I'm an office co honest coffee shop owner operator. But Andy and John, my beloved co-authors, they are dishonest as can be. They promise wonderful health effects. They say drinking their coffee will make you beautiful. You'll lose 20 pounds. It'll have every positive effect you want, and it's the best damn cup of coffee in the world. I tell the truth. I say, I sell a good cup of coffee. You'll walk out with a smile on your face, but you won't have any of these other attributes. But these guys lie. And because they lie, there's a big queue outside of their shops. They are using their dishonesty to divert trade away from my business. And that is an unfair method of competition. The FTC is besieged with these complaints from the word go. And it says, yes, this has a competition policy implication. It's what we would now call dishonest advertising, and we'd put it in another policy-making basket. But the FTC starts doing consumer protection that has to be linked to competitive injury. It starts doing it from the word go. And it's not until the late 30s that that is recognized as a formal, separate enforcement mandate without the requirement that competitive harm be shown. That's the Wheeler-Lee Act. But later on, there comes the recognition that if the FTC is going to be the principal advertising regulator and it's going to deal with serious consumer fraud, that you can't exercise that mandate effectively unless you can make bad guys give the money up. If the only thing that happens when you enforce a law against fraud is that you tell, a court tells, my beloved colleagues here, cut it out, what have they been told? They've been told they get one shot, one free shot. 
I can cheat, steal one time, the FTC issues a cease and desist order and say, ah, I can't do it again, but I'll try something else out. If you can't get an order that makes them cough the money up, you've got a problem with your consumer protection regime, and that is what unmistakably pushes the FTC in the 70s to developing over the next decades until AMG Capital, the restitution and disgorgement remedy. So an implication of this mission expansion into consumer protection over time comes the inevitable demand for the development of remedies that develop effective deterrence over time. And I agree with the previous panel that every step you take away from that original vision of broad interpretive mandate but light touch remedies, you're moving in the direction of an enforcement mechanism that takes you directly into federal court far more often. The march into federal court is expanded in the 1970s with Section 13B, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline Authorization Act, which is tossed onto the train of must-have legislation that says, literally written on, well, this is white, but they were yellow pages. Here, here's some other stuff we'd like for the FTC. See if it travels. It did. Independent Litigating Authority. Authority can be interpreted as creating a foundation for civil monetary recoveries outside of the scope of civil penalties. And then the Hart-Scott-Rodino Antitrust Improvements Act of 1976 that converts antitrust enforcement at the FTC from ex-post review through the administrative process into ex-ante challenges directly in the federal district courts. So that moves a massive amount of FTC work out of the Part 3 adjudication process into direct actions in the federal court. And the consequence of all of these measures is to take step-by-step work streams out of internal administrative adjudication and channel them into direct litigation in the federal courts, which poses the problem that our colleagues mentioned before on the previous panel. And in all of this, what is the commentary saying? What's the baseline of commentary written by individual academics or by blue ribbon commissions like the 1969 ABA report? Every bit of advice they're giving is telling the agency to march into a more politically risky and difficult environment. And the ABA 1969 report, which is strong on bravado and short on any form of political judgment, says, go attack big firms involving unsettled areas of the law and leave everything that's straightforward to the Department of Justice. That's a formula for political collisions. And yes, indeed, as you try to exercise it, you get lots of political oversight. Does losing Humphrey's executive matter? My qualified answer is not so much as one might think. And I think Paul Verkyle's comment earlier and Svetlana's comments about right. Why? Let's look at the mechanisms for political control now. Uh, using the wonderful framework of the political science text, two ends of both ends of the avenue, let's go to the easternmost end of Pennsylvania Avenue up to Capitol Hill. What can the Congress do? Well, it can exercise oversight, and it can exercise it in a way that just takes your life away from you. 
They can run you up there every week if they want to. They can get documents. They can subpoena the records of the agency right down to, but maybe not including the communications of attorney advisors and individual members of the board acting in adjudication mechanisms. They can carry out budget and oversight functions. It astonishes me how blasé lots of the political science and administrative law literature is in saying, oh, budget oversight, appropriations, shrug, not important, not effective, breathtaking. All written by people who've never had to justify a budget. The FTC's budget, plus or minus, is about $300 million. Do you know what it means if Congress threatens credibly to take it from 300 down to 295, you can get by with that. It means that people are gonna to have to bring in their own writing instruments. Ah, Hilton Hotels, yes, elegant, one of my favorite brands. Capsis out of the blue, a notepad from a hotel, and no hot water in the restrooms. Okay, five million, you can cut out the travel. If they go down to 290, you have to fire people. And if you take five million, the addition five million out, you're probably gonna fire about 20 or 30 people. And you know who's gonna fire them? It's ultimately gonna be the chair of the agency who brings them in one by one and says, thank you for your loyal service, you're gone. And no public official looks forward to doing that. The ability to move the budget in one direction or another is an extraordinary source of oversight. And if they call and want to chat and you don't do it, and then you sit before them begging, which is what you're doing, you're begging, they say, I remember you. You're the person who wouldn't take my call. Ah, 300, that's awfully tough. 290. It's a powerful lever to use with the agency if they don't like what you're doing. And I can recall as a junior case handler on two occasions in 1980, getting the famous banker's box filling up everything in my office and taking it home because Congress, in approving an omnibus continuing resolution, had a clause that said the federal government is funded at a pro rata rate for the next six months except the Federal Trade Commission. You've run out of money two times. You don't have to do that very often to catch the attention of a public agency. So there's budget and appropriations, and then there is the political feedback loop. What has happened on so many occasions where the FTC has exercised this norms creation function? Business says, ouch, that's unprecedented, that hurts. Where do they go? Especially in the modern era, they go to the legislative committees and they provide them with electoral resources, respect, money, respect, money. They go to the Appropriations Committee, they go to the Oversight Committee, and they hand it out, and through a variety of conduits, they bring pressure to bear on Congress. And what does it do in many instances? Up comes the Federal Trade Commission. Why are you doing that? Whoever told you you could do that? Let's see, Section 5, Unfair Methods of Competition. You told us. Who said you could do that study? Well, you did, it's in section six. The political pressure that comes back at you is so intense that an agency that does not have a fair amount of political science represented in the board to build a strategy and anticipate challenges is walking into a minefield wearing a blindfold. 
Let's look at the executive. How much did Humphrey dis, Humphrey's executor disable the executive? I'll acknowledge that there is some power in knowing as a decision maker that you can only be removed for a cause. I didn't care. I had another form of tenure. I knew that if I'd been sacked in 25 minutes, I would be back in my office at GW getting ready to write the article about how I was sacked and what a war crime it was. I'd be ready to do it. They'd have given me better material and they would have made my book so much better than it would have been otherwise. Thank you for doing that. I didn't care. But in what ways can the executive make you care about its decisions even if Humphrey stays in place? Our previous panel mentioned a couple. One is that they get to appoint you. And I assure you, in the screening that goes into the selection of FTC commissioners, there is an arduous effort to get an idea of whether you understand who appointed you and what your job is. And if you have political loyalties, what do you want? Maybe I'll get reappointed. Maybe I'll get to be the ambassador to Australia. Maybe I'll be the head of the mission in the European Union. Or even better, maybe I'll get to be the ambassador to New Zealand, and I'm so far away, nobody's going to pay attention to me, and what a great place to be. I want to be able to go to parties so that people don't turn their back on me because I'm not doing what the president wants. I want to be seen as a loyalist. Now, can that wear off over time? Yeah, but your tenure as chair, median, three years at the FTC. And there's going to be another chair around, too, so you're not going to have that job for very long. Uh, the appointment party power, the screening is intense. Very few people slip through there by hiding their real colors. You don't get many pirate ships that get through by flying the flag of the Red Cross. It doesn't happen. And then you move into the 1950 Reorganization Act, which means I have the ability as president to say, Josh, great job as chair, but by signing a letter, why Andy's on the board, Andy's now the chair. But thank you, Josh, for your loyal service. In the desk of every federal trade commissioner is the gavel of a chair. Every federal trade commission non-chair commissioner thinks they would be a better chair than the chair. I know I was one of those people. And I know my four colleagues all would look at me at meetings and say, I can do the job better than that guy. And if they get the call, they'll take it. And an interesting implicit threat that the White House has, if they're not happy, is, let's see, who are the other same party people? I've got two choices. I've got Andy, I've got Josh. And Andy and Josh aren't stupid. They're sort of raising their hands saying, I'll take it. They're signaling in speeches, writing articles. I'll take it. I'm available because Bill's a loser. We will do what you want. Give it to us. Uh, that remarkable power created in 1950 to move the chair's designation around is a powerful pressure point of political control. You don't have to use it a lot. In a football match, in global football, if the referee sees something they don't want, they just have to reach for the pocket. You don't have to pull out the red car. You see the hand reaching and you know what's going on. Uh, is that the same as being able to simply cast somebody off the board and say, no longer, you're not the chair, but you're no longer working at this agency? No, it's not that powerful. But is it weak? Uh, I love my time in the United Kingdom when if you're dealing with a superior individual in the hierarchy and they've said something they regard as being doubtful, the response is, really? 
so the 50, 1950 reappointment power, the power to move, is ineffective? Really? What's next? Well, we've got the budget, too. You don't submit your budget to Congress. It goes through OMB. And they look at it, and they ask a lot of questions about what's in there. Now, can you play magic tricks to get through the program you want by OMB and then go up to Congress and say, by the way, those narrow-minded people over there, they wouldn't let us have this. We want a red bicycle for our birthday, and they're only going to give us uh, a used baseball card deck from last year. Here, I want the bicycle. Can you do that sort of workaround? Of course you can. But OMB gets to scrub your budget request in the first instance carefully. There is, of course, the Paperwork Reduction Act. If you want to exercise that magical 6B authority, no more than nine before you need their approval. That means nine's the number you look at, but maybe you ought to be looking at 20. No, you're going to do nine. You're going to bump into the PRA. And, of course, in appointments, on the first item, you're picking people who want to serve. I urge you to go and look at the photograph taken at the signing of President Biden's executive order for the whole of government competition policy. You have a group of senior officials. One of them's the chair of the FTC. President Biden is reaching back with the pen to give it to her. I urge you to look at that photograph and ask how much independence you see in that picture. Not much. So, how independent are the agencies? They're not. And it's by design. It's a horribly imprecise term to describe what takes place. So let's say Humphrey's executor goes. All these other mechanisms, of course, are supplemented now by the removal power. I'm trying to think of how often a chair of the FTC has been told by the White House, here's something we want, and the chair says, I'd love to find a way to do it. I'd love to find you 60% of what you want, 90%, but I'm not going to do it. The clearest example I can think of is when President Trump went to Joe Simons and said, I want the FTC to use its advertising scrutiny authority to scrutinize the truthfulness of political ads. Because many of my opponents are saying outrageous things about me, and I want you to use your authority to police that. Joe, after a couple of meetings on both occasions, said no. No. That will destroy us. We could be in that business for a couple of months and we will be finished. I'm not going to do it. I don't know even there if the president said, you're now Commissioner Simon. Chair Simon is over here now. I don't know if he made that threat or if he would have carried through with that to say, you're fired. I'll get somebody who'll do that. Would there have been any recognition that that would have been the doom of the agency? Where would it matter the most if the president used this authority? And I think this would ultimately be an inhibition on how often it's used in the same way that it inhibits its use for the Department of Justice. The president of the United States could call up Jonathan Cantor now and say, John, you've done a great job. Uh, it's just about 1 o'clock. I want you out of here by 5. But thanks for serving the US public. The only thing John could say is, it's been a pleasure, Mr. President. And I wish you the best of success in the future. Like that. That seldom happens. Why doesn't it happen? Why would it not happen so much with the FTC? Because the argument you use to prevail ultimately has to go through the federal courts in our system. And what's the argument that agencies use to win before the federal courts? Why do you defer to us? 
I think Chevron, other doctrines are ultimately meaningless because they're so manipulable. I think you get the deference you earn. You first persuade the reviewing court that you did a good job, and then they can say the wonderful words that accompany deference. They can do that then. But you have to persuade them that you've done a good job. And one of the ways you do that is to show, in the case of the FTC, you've brought all of this awesome expertise to bear on solving the problem so that your problem is unmistakably the best in class. At that point, the courts will say, even a court of exalted experts that we have in the DC Circuit, remarkable experts, will say, good job, good on you, affirmed. You don't get the deference automatically. When I was general counsel, I told the board, never bring a case if you think that's going to be the margin of victory. That we couldn't win unless we get some deference, whether it's substantial evidence or some other wonderful ethereal doctrine that says you get the benefit of the doubt. I said, that's an illusion. In the desert of litigation, that is the mirage to which you can crawl, but it becomes another sand dune, and your case will die in the desert. Don't rely on it. What you do rely on is good professional work, which ultimately involves showing that your expertise is the foundation of the successful case. You used your expertise. If it seems that you brought the case not because of your expertise, but because you had a 32 at your temple, and the 32 was held by an elected official saying, do this, I think you get no deference at all. You'll bring your case, but it will die in the courts. And when we think of independence and autonomy, the autonomy, the measure of insulation that must be preserved at all costs for an expert agency, is the sense in reality and in appearance that you acted on the basis of the superior expertise that's vested in you. And you did not act because political forces have directed you to do this. So I think the discipline that would make presidents hesitate to use removal power casually is the fact that agency action ultimately must go through the courts and the judges are keenly attentive to what you did and why you did it. A final thought on looking at this, this, this compressed history of the FTC's experience is I think if we think of the expertise that an agency can usefully develop, there's a gap in many ways, and that's history. I think an agency would be wise to have the small office, maybe one person of the official historian, to know the history that Tom Merrill is bringing to bear in his, his paper on rulemaking, to know the history of how the power evolved and how the functions changed over time and to anticipate what happens, and this goes back to my work with David, what happens when you add new functions that pull you in another direction, make you use different tools, do different things? Uh, if you don't have that, and there's a tendency not to have it in a regime change when you come in, you miss the significance and side effects of decisions you're taking day in and out, day in and day out going ahead. So, independence, wrong word. What do you have to be independent? You have to show the court that you used your own judgment in bringing cases, and yet used your expertise. Does Humphrey's executor matter? Some, but does it really add another significant layer of oversight? I'd say the oversight is pretty damn powerful as it is. Thank you.
Thank you. I can. can do that. Sure. Ever the professor, if you have got questions uh, for, for Bill, fire away. We can do it for a couple minutes before we, uh, we break and come back if there are any questions. Please. <laughs> doesn't have a demonstrated history of independence. Uh, I'd, say, I'd say it has been divergent in one notable respect over time with some variation, and that is the Section 5 mandate uh, to be used effectively and to be used in a way that Congress sees as being effective has to, by definition, go beyond something that the department's doing already. That is to pick up things that the department wouldn't do. And at a time when the system is contracting, Arguably, that makes sense, perhaps contracting in a way that it shouldn't uh, in, the, in the sports world of, of, the, of the fall in the United States that the strike zone is collapsing too much and ought to be reset. Uh, that's when you might see the FTC doing things. But I would say even there, when it was moving beyond the bounds of what the department did, it did in a way that reflected, to use the language in the cases, the spirit of the antitrust laws. So. If the Department of Justice had established in a, state, uh, in, in a case clearly that an agreement to set output levels and prices was fundamentally illegal, and the FTC comes along and says, if you're a group of pasta manufacturers and you conclude that competition on quality is disruptive in the sector, and you form an agreement to say, we will not use high quality pasta, uh, uh, grain to make our pasta because that will tampen competition, the FTC brings a case that says, that is just as bad as the price and output restriction, that's operating within the spirit of something the department had done. Um, now, in the modern era, the area we've seen more divergence is a number of issues related to intellectual property. But I'd say, I'd say for the most part, uh, the, the, the Venn diagram over, over, overlaps uh, uh, substantially. Jeff. How important do you think the, the multi-member aspect of the commission is, and also the political party affiliation aspect? Would, if those went away, how important would that be? I, I, um, I'd like to think that it would give you more freedom to pick a better ensemble. And I think of my experience on the board at the CMA, which does not have um, similar restrictions. The board fulfills a different function, but it does what the board really should do, which is set strategy, evaluate risk, reward. Uh, I look at every meeting I had. We'd had one monthly meeting with the board. Every single meeting I had with the board in London was better than any meeting I had at the FTC. And it's in part because of the composition of the board and the kinds of people that were drawn to it and appointed through their appointment process. I despair that we could do that here. Uh, the, the temptation in the White House and the Congress to pick people who are responsive to them. Uh, you can guess, if I asked you to guess, what is the what single characteristic beyond being a lawyer uh, identifies the largest number of FTC commissioners? If you think a bit about this political control, they are former congressional staffers or members of Congress. 
That's the, that's, they want people they can talk to and regard as having similar values. The second group are people who came out of the White House. So from both political branches of government come the largest pool of members of the FTC. Maybe that would never change because they want that link to be in place, no matter what. But I'd like to think that you could step back and think, you know, what kind of expertise do we want on the board? About 100 people have served as Federal Trade Commissioners. Four economists in, a, in, a, in, in, a, in 108 years now, four. The original vision was there's got to be someone there all the time. You want to do a lot of tech? How about GASP? An engineer, maybe? Computer scientists? Wow, what an idea. Never happened. So I would like to think that if you dispensed with the political diversity requirement, you might be able to, you might have more freedom to look for a more diverse ensemble based on expertise and background than simply political affiliation. But I despair of that, Jeff, because I, 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 my concern would be no matter what the requirement is, it will all be filtered through an appointment and approval process that places such a premium on fidelity to a political point of view. Past background, please. The FTC will end up as a single-headed agency. It will be dissolved and reconstituted if this adjudication function is not brought back to life in a major way. And when I was a young person at the FTC in the late 70s, early 80s, and looking at trends over time, which were developing then, we had eight administrative law judges. There's one now. Uh, what we said again and again, from a narrow parochial view of trying to sustain the institution as a source of doing useful things, we said, if part three administrative adjudication does not become a centerpiece of policy making, this place is on the way out. And not simply on the way out in terms of Humphrey's executor saying, that's not the agency we looked at before. You don't need a board to decide to go to federal court. Uh, I, I, I think a, I think a, um, if you see the further attenuation of the administrative adjudication process, I think you're going to be, you, you might be headed to one. And a benefit of going to one is that it's more pressure on the Congress and the White House to pick someone of true distinction. You can't get away with parking people there who don't belong. Please. Yeah, um, I, I concur with what you Good, I think we're done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We have a concurrence. Good. No. Uh, my experience, you, you started out saying about uh, 1914 and, and unfairness, and that's, that's a subjective term. My experience having I'm CEO of LabMD, um, it took us about eight you. years. You. <laughs> yes. I, 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 it took about eight years for us to get in front of our three judge where the FTC lawyer said, we can rule make in the, while we adjudicate, at which point the, the judges were like, well, thank you for that concession. Uh, because it took us forever, and we never got an answer about what we were doing unfairly, which I think was the foundation of the laws. But if we had not had to go through that administrative process, Hal, and had gone right through Article Three, I think it would have changed things dramatically in my case specifically. But I think it happens a lot. Ah, that's where, that's where I'm, I'm just going to ask, yeah. as the academic, tell me what a lot is. Well, 
I don't, I'm not in court all the time. I, I, pay, I pay attention to the outliers and to those that are mainstream examples, but I don't know how representative your experience was. Was Kafka one of the uh, name parties? Like okay, yeah, yeah, right. Um, I, I guess uh, you know I, I, I take I take the the episodes uh, very seriously in my in my current life. Uh, I guess what I'd be intrigued to know is to what extent um, your treatment there deviated from the guidance they put out on what unfairness is. That is, did it give you any sense at all about what they might be looking at? Absolutely not. But is that relevant to the general question of never have to understand what unfair is in general before they start out? Well, you know, in the unfairness area, I mean, uh, uh, you know, here's, here's what a, a law office would do generally. I mean, you've got, you have a policy statement that's fairly detailed. Uh, it's a fairly elaborate statement. Uh, with notes about what they think is in and not. There are adjudicated cases. Cybersecurity? Well, that's, 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 that's new. Um, uh, but uh, in, in, in other areas, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm so accustomed to listening to the great bar in this city, which uh, sees themselves as being the smartest people on earth and great Kremlinologists. I think they tell their clients all the time, we know. We can tell you. Uh, and so often confidently saying, you know, we, we give people guidance on this. You can go this way, this way. There's a little bit of danger here. Are they making it all up? Are they really that disabled in providing guidance about what happens? I'm, I'm, I spend too much of my time with people who would not suggest that, that they do know what it means. They have a pretty good idea. And even if they can't say, here's a precise probability that this practice will carry you in this direction or that direction. Um, they give pretty good guidance on this. I'm not asking you to change lawyers, but um, I, just, I just wonder. I think it's the world of medicine and technology that's incredibly dangerous. I think in other areas that's, that's perfectly plausible and fine. But in, in the world of science and cyber that is evolving and constantly changing, it's, it's hard to, to, to live on that type of footing because people get hurt. Uh, I guess uh, a fun, I, I would say that uh, a, a weakness for all policymaking involving these issues is the underlying expertise of the agencies. That's a global problem. There's only one agency on earth I know that's tried to address that in a meaningful way. That's the Competition and Markets Authority in the UK. But, but the problem of how you deal with highly dynamic sectors that have formidable technical features to them and understanding the technical features is vital to doing a good diagnosis, suggesting a solution and carrying it out. That's a problem that has dogged the system since 1890. Uh, 
<laughs> and that's uh, that has been a that's a that's a that's a chronic concern from the background. And it wouldn't surprise you that if we go back and look at commentary at the time, it's the same critique about petroleum refining or aluminum manufacturing. It's the same basic concern, and it's a legitimate one. But part of what I'd say is we don't want to pay for that expertise. We do not want to build agencies that have that expertise. And every time I hear legislators talk about how we want bolder, better programs in this area, I say, do you want to pay for it? And in this nation, as you may know, we want to drive a Mercedes, but we want to pay for a Chevy. And, uh, and, 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 and if, you're not good, if you don't want to do that, or at least pay the same scale as the CFPB, which is about a 20% policy. If it's, why is that worth so much more? Not clear to me. I know because it's how they're paid. But, uh, but if we don't want to do it, at one level I say, no, we get what we pay for. All the way. But good point. Thank don't, you. Don't step back. No. Please join me again. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. We will uh, turn to all things uh, Article 3 and, and Part 3 uh, in the afternoon, but uh, we will reconvene 1.30, so you get some time if you want to walk around, get some coffee, whatever you need. Uh, we will be back with Panel 3 at 1.30. Thank you. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AdLaw.